0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist.
1: Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The Outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser Katz, along with my illustrious co host, Justin Ritchie, who is recovering from a wild and crazy Halloween. Aren't you, Justin?
1: Halloween was a fascinating time this year because there's a group here in Vancouver that is called the In the House Festival and they hold various performances inside houses. And so they had a haunted house called the House of Very Bad Things. And you had to go to this secret meeting place that they only emailed you the day before. So I got an email and it was like, go to this place, and then there's going to be a Batman symbol on the door. And I show up at the place, and it's like, actually, we moved the place. It's over here. So then I had to walk to the other place. And so then there was a, a man in a costume, and he said that he was going to be our guide because at this time of year, there is a crossover between worlds and the barrier between the fairy world and our world is very thin. And he leads us into a house and there's all these elves in there and there's like 30 actors doing performances and there's this whole story that's involved. And eventually we go into this fairy court and there's like a king and he's, there's like the tooth fairy and they're all dancing around. And then they were like, we're going to summon the Ice Queen. And the Ice Queen was like, I'm going to destroy human civilization. And then she was like, actually, you guys are going to do it on your own. So I'm just going to wait. So you guys are going to destroy your own civilization.
0: Wow. That sounds like a pretty eventful Halloween, Justin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was. So did you cross over into the Fairyland?
1: I got to say, it was pretty incredible. And I've never seen that many actors devoted to creating such an incredible unique experience before and it was really special it sounds
0: really lovely so who are we
1: talking to this week justin we're talking with richard heinberg of the post carbon institute he's one of the foremost authors on the topic of energy depletion and resource depletion with books like The Party's Over, Peak Everything, and now his most recent book, The End of Growth, which talks about what it means that our global economic system has hit the end of the ability to extract ever-increasing rates of energy and resources from our planet to grow our economies. And because of that, everything about our economic system is going to have to change. So he argues in the book, using tons of data about finance and economics, that we've reached the end of growth and we're going to have to start adapting to it.
0: So Justin, what would you say to people who listen to our show and are like, man, all these guys do is talk to these really down people who are just predicting the end of civilization as we know it. How would you respond to critics who say, maybe you should look on the other side of life sometimes, guys?
1: Well, I think what people will find by listening to Richard Heinberg is that the end of growth isn't the end of the world. It's just the end of the world that we think we live in.
0: Yeah, I would probably say something like, on this show, we bring you the sides that you don't normally see, that you don't hear on the mainstream media because they're just too scared to play it. But we are not scared on the extra environmentalists. That is something that we are not, right, Justin? We are not scared at all. We will bring it to you up close and personal, and we will bring it to you soft and smooth, and that's how we do it. So get ready for it, Richard Heinberg on the Extra Environmentalist.
1: Richard, thanks for joining us from your office in Santa Rosa, California today to talk about your latest book, uh, The End of Growth. My pleasure to be with you. As one of the leading authors on energy depletion, how did the process of writing this book change your views on peak oil and its connection to the economy?
2: You know, I think up to 2008, like most other peak oil authors, I was assuming that as oil became more scarce, there would be kind of a linear response from oil prices that we would see the oil price go from $60, $70, where it was back in 2005 to $80 to 100 to 120 to 150 to 200 and 300 You know, the sky was the limit. But what we really learned in 2008 was that there is a feedback process. And as the oil price rises, Beyond a a certain level, it tends to undercut economic activity, particularly in the already industrialized countries like the US. So what we saw in in 2008 was a collapse in oil prices. After the big spike that hit almost $150, the oil price collapsed down to a little over $30 and then has recovered since then back to, I think it's about $115 in the world market right now. So what we're seeing is that the economies of the industrialized countries simply can't withstand oil prices higher than a certain level and that's that's contributing to the inability of these Western economies to recover from the financial crisis. We haven't really seen a genuine recovery. We have an ersatz recovery that was purchased with uh, hundreds of billions in stimulus packages and trillions more in bank bailouts. But that's not a real recovery. It's not a self-sustaining recovery. And we're not going to see one because as soon as the uh, economy looks like it's about to recover, that pushes oil prices up to the region where they prevent real economic growth from occurring. So that that's something that I was just beginning to understand when I started writing the book, as I was writing the book, that really came to the forefront as a significant factor that's choking off world economic growth right now.
0: So you mentioned oil in that first statement there, and oil is such a big part of so many of our lives and so much about what your book is about. Um, why do we live in a society that bases its entire way of life on- on a resource that is in such short supply.
2: The reason is it wasn't in short supply in the early days. It was incredibly cheap and abundant. And actually, that was true right up until the, uh, well, certainly through the 70s, until the early 70s. But then in the, in the 70s, the shortages were all political. It was a matter of OPEC holding back a supply. And then there were lots of discoveries in the 80s in North Sea and, and um, Alaska and other places. So really, we haven't seen scarcity until just this last 10 years and it's shown up as, as higher prices. And transfer of demand from the industrialized countries to the, the so-called developing countries like China. But you know the reason we got hooked it was was it was so easy and so good. I mean, this is an energy source that was more energy dense and cheaper to produce than anything we'd ever seen previously. You know, we we used to use firewood as, as yeah. our major energy source along with food crops. The example I always give is having to push your car off to the side of the road if you run out of gas. It's a lot of work. Well. That try pushing your car 20 or 30 miles. That's the equivalent of six or eight weeks of hard human labor. And we get that done for us with a single gallon of gasoline for which we're paying less than $4 in this country. So six or eight weeks of hard human labor energy equivalent for $4, you you can't get labor that cheap anywhere in the world. And that's why we have uh, used oil to mechanize all sorts of processes of production and transportation over the last century. If it hadn't been that cheap and easy, we wouldn't have done it.
1: Now we find ourselves in a situation on the planet where Western industrialized economies are suffering tremendously because they've racked up tremendous debts and those debts are now looking more and more like the unthinkable that some countries are going to have to either take tremendous haircuts or start defaulting. And so is there a connection between the issues that we're experiencing with oil on a global scale and price? and all of the economic issues that are happening.
2: It's a somewhat complicated story, but the connections are profound and go all really all the way back to this 21st century credit Mm -hmm. bubble. And I would argue that started in the early 20th century when our problem was overproduction. Using cheap fossil fuels, we could make stuff faster than people could buy them. And so we solved that problem with two strategies. One was advertising, talking people into buying more stuff. And the second was consumer credit, making it easier for people to buy stuff on time by taking on more debt. So that started with the automobile industry because cars were a big-ticket luxury item that people couldn't really pay for with cash. Not many people could, whereas it was possible to make enough cars for everybody to own one. So the solution, of course, as I say, was helping people go into debt to buy cars and then houses with house mortgages and then with credit cards to buy almost everything. So debt increases throughout the 20th century, but especially after the 1970s when we start to get globalization, the effect of globalization, which comes about because of the advent of container shipping and satellite communications. The, the effect of, of globalization is to reduce wages in the already industrialized countries because workers in those countries can't compete with people in China and other less industrialized countries. Okay, so that drives down wages. So people can't buy more stuff with increasing levels of wages. But advertising and the need for economic growth, you know, require people to continue consuming more stuff. How do they do that with more debt? So since 1970s, debt is growing faster than GDP. It's growing faster than energy consumption in the West. So that leads us up to the big credit bubble of the last 10 years. And when that bursts, then the whole edifice starts to come apart. And there's really no going back because there's no way to grow the economy anymore in the ways that we were accustomed to with cheap energy. And we can't grow the economy anymore with more debt because we've reached the the limits of debt. Consumers can't take on more debt and banks don't want to loan to them. So, we're at this point where there's just no more cheese at the end of the tunnel. And uh, it appears to most people to be purely a financial problem. But if you look under the covers, there's this long and deep connection with our addiction to cheap energy.
0: In a very quickly disappearing middle class, people are starting to wake up to the fact that they can't realize the economic daydream that they've been promised for their entire lives. With unemployment at around 9% and GDP growing at a reported 1.3% in the second quarter, are our economic statistics telling us the whole story? And how do we know what the actual levels of unemployment in the United States are? What happens when GDP is growing below the rate of inflation?
2: There's a uh, website that people can go to to look at alternative statistics, economic statistics for the U.S., and that's called shadowstats.com. Uh, it's run by a guy named John Williams, who has had a long career in compiling government statistics, economic statistics. And what, what he's basically doing is presenting uh, information about unemployment and inflation using the format that was standard practice in the U.S. until just you know recent years. Basically, the U.S. government has changed the way it reports unemployment and, and inflation and GDP to make the numbers look better than they really are. Uh, if you report GDP, inflation, and unemployment the way we used to do it, unemployment, rather than being 9.2% or something, is actually more like 16%. percent GDP growth for the past few years basically disappears, and inflation looks a lot worse because uh, prices of energy and food have have soared, and those numbers are are generally taken out of the inflation statistics that are currently released by the government. So we don't really know where we're going in terms of the economy because we just don't have honest numbers coming from the government.
1: What's the relationship between debt levels and economic growth? If we're reaching the point where we are unable to grow by adding more debt to our economies, what happens next?
0: <laughs> people still have to eat and people still have to, yeah. to do things in their lives, you know? Right. They can't, they can't but, shut those things down.
1: Well, unfortunately,
2: they can be shut down. I mean, it is possible to have a financial or economic crash in which people can no longer afford to go to the store and buy food, in which people can no longer afford to make payments on their houses. And this this is happening already to a lot of people, even in in the U.S., one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but it could get much worse. What happens is we will see massive defaults. Over the past decade, we saw this credit bubble inflate to a point where the claims on real wealth far outstretched that real wealth, claims in the form of securities and derivatives and other forms of debt. And payments on debt, particularly government debt, could be made in the context of rapid economic growth. If we could get back to 4 or 5% economic growth, then the government debt that's been taken on over the past three or four years wouldn't be that big a deal. But that's just not in the cards for structural reasons because of uh, the things we were talking about earlier because oil prices are getting higher and prices of other commodities, minerals and metals are getting higher. Natural disasters are worsening and so on. So if the economy can't Flip back to four or five percent growth, then suddenly all this debt becomes unrepayable, and and we're talking about not just government debt, but massive, massive levels of debt held by banks as assets. You know, when people were seeing the price of their homes, the value of their homes soaring back in the mid two thousands, what folks did, of course, was use those inflated house values as collateral for taking on more loans, second mortgages and home equity lines of credit. And those loans are held still held by the big banks as assets. And the value of those assets has plummeted because the, the underlying value of, of the houses has plummeted. But the banks have not marked the value of those assets to their real market value, they're still pretending that those home equity lines of credit and second mortg- mortgages are still, you know, triple rated debt. And when those toxic assets finally see the light of day and get marked to market, the result is going to be massive, massive disappearance, apparent wealth from the economy. What happened in 2008 with the fall in value of houses Is American households lost over $6 trillion in net worth? The collapsing value of their homes resulted in the loss of about $6 trillion in assets, in effect, held by homeowners. Well, what the banks are holding in loans based on the value of those houses is much more than that. So the the banks are sitting on these massive toxic assets that are covered up, not just by themselves, but also by the government, because the Treasury Federal Reserve don't want the truth revealed in the light of day, because if that were to happen, it would result in a collapse of the banking industry. So, you know, they've already bent over backward to prop up the banks with uh, trillions of dollars in loan guarantees and bailouts so the last thing they want to see is for you know the banking system to fail but you know it's more or less inevitable and when this happens when the stopper finally comes out of the bottle we are going to see the world's greatest financial crash in all of history it's not going to be pretty and everybody is going to be impacted by it
0: That sounds like a pretty bleak picture. So there is all this unrepayable debt. You mentioned that. And there are tons of people losing their jobs and businesses are failing and the banks are being bailed out by our government. What does it mean that all these assets and wealth are disappearing from the United States? What does that mean in a global picture? Do you see in in the future a return to the normal? Is there going to be a return to business as usual?
2: No, no, there will never be a return to business as usual. Because what we think of as business as usual was an unsustainable blip on world history. The the 20th century was something that could never have happened previously until we had the cheap energy sources that made it happen. And it will never happen again, because we will never have fossil fuels to burn again. The 20th century was just a remarkable experience for our species and for the rest of planet Earth. And in some ways, it was fantastic. You know, what we were able to do during the 20th century in terms of scientific research, exploring other planets and the stars and the human body and all the way down to DNA, finding out what DNA was. I mean, one could go on and on. What we were able to do with the wealth and the cheap energy that we had available during the 20th century was absolutely awesome. But we're never going to have that again. Life is going to be very different from now on. It's going to be a very difficult adjustment for our species. That's not to say it's the end of the world. You know, what we're doing is we're going back to normal. <laughs> and, you know, normal for our species is a much slower rates of cultural change. And in some ways, that's going to be good because we paid a lot for all those amazing developments of the 20th century. We also saw during that century, the population of humanity increase from a couple of billion to seven billion. And that meant the drawing down uh, not only of fossil fuel resources, but fresh water and fish in the oceans and climate change emerging as a world changing issue and all the rest. So the price for the achievements of the 20th century is one that we will continue to pay for the next several centuries, probably. But as I say, the readjustment back to a normal way of life after this anomalous period of rapid economic growth. I think could be seen as a good thing if we can understand why this is happening and the general direction in which we need to go. And if we can cooperate in doing that, we could actually end up with a way of life that is better for most people than we experienced during the 20th century.
1: Yet that viewpoint is nowhere in the mainstream discussion of the current economic issues. And I was just in the United States recently and saw a bunch of campaign ads and both sides, Republican and Democrats, were saying he didn't create jobs or he did create jobs. All right. of the narrative is about, you know, we want to create jobs. Let's get back to growth. And a lot of people still think that we're still in a recession, that normal's right around the corner. The economy is going to recover. And that viewpoint is amplified by the words coming from our leaders, uh, Obama, Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve. What do you think is going through their heads right now? What do you, Clearly, uh, President Obama... Has been briefed on everything that's come out in the first reports (laughs) and everything that's been known by the peak oil community for a long time.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't assume that at all. I think the the information that's fed to President Obama is very carefully chosen, and he's spoon fed with information to maintain a worldview on his part that coincides with the worldviews of the people who are you know more or less running the show. What's going through the minds of people like Ben Bernanke? I hesitate to speculate, but I. genuinely think that these people do not really understand what's going on. They understand a lot of the superficial aspects of the economic crash itself, the financial problems of the banks and of, uh, you know, Greece and the other sovereign debt default nations in Europe. But they don't understand the deeper systemic crises of resource depletion, the energy picture, and the worsening impacts from climate change. They hear about these things from time to time, but they haven't really internalized those factors. And that's why I wrote the book, really to help not so much those folks, because I think they're unlikely to read the book, but to help ordinary people see why this is happening, to understand that this is not the fault of one particular group of people, or surely the banks have committed fraud and they deserve to, you know, a lot of bankers deserve to be in jail and so on, but that's not going to solve the problem. We have to understand that this is a fundamental change of course for our entire economy and we're all going to have to adapt.
1: At this moment in time, we're starting to see public backlash against the people who have engineered the system to accumulate wealth for themselves. And so we see a lot of global unrest and now Occupy Wall Street here in the United States spreading out across the nation, even here into Canada. So where do you see this going? Is everyone just going to trash everything because they're so angry? <laughs> you know, you see in Greece, people occupying their defense ministry, their statistics bureau, so that the government can't even report back its statistics uh, to the European Central Bank. Are we just going to have a global period of of anarchy? Or do you think that there can be a meaningful revolution of values? Well, I hope so.
2: I think of the Occupy movement really as the end of growth uprising. Because if we had economic growth, then none of this would be happening. Governments would be able to repay their debts instead of being again at this economic precipice like we were in two thousand eight where everyone is fearful that the whole thing could just fall apart at any minute. Instead of that we'd be, you know, in in a genuine recovery. But that's not what's happening. Instead we have austerity on every hand, you know, the, the the clamoring on the part of 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 the bondholders for nations to cut back on government spending and taking away services for the middle class and the, and the poorer class of the, of the population. So people are out of work and they have no confidence that anything's going to turn around anytime soon. That's a recipe for putting people out on the street. And that's exactly what we're seeing. You know, the, the folks in the Occupy movement don't have really well articulated demands. And that's more or less inevitable because the crisis that we're facing is a really complicated one. It's It, it involves the banks, it involves our energy sources, it involves... The fundamental economic model that we're using. So all of that is really hard to capture in a, in a few slogans. But these folks are absolutely right to be angry because the people in charge are not steering us in any kind of sustainable direction. So what's going to happen, I think, is that policymakers, the politicians are going to continue trying to deny and delay because they really don't understand the problem. And what they do understand, they're, they're too cowardly to try to really honestly address So as a result, the economy is going to continue getting worse. People are going to continue coming out in the street in ever larger numbers. And governments really are going to ultimately face a choice between two things. Either they can try to repress this uprising through the police and the military, and that will just result in tearing of the social fabric and ultimately either revolution or social disintegration. Or on the other hand, they'll be forced to undertake fundamental economic reforms and when I say that I mean not only addressing the problem of extreme economic inequality that's motivating a lot of the protests but also they're going to have to find some way to completely reorganize our economy so that it will meet basic human needs in the context of the end of growth in other words not relying upon continued economic growth in order to fulfill promises to the electorate that's uh, that's a tall order but nothing less will do it's either that or it's uh, social disintegration where
3: are they the other 99% the silent people the sleeping giant great
4: army of God-fearing Americans who are not sick and who are not afraid, but who are concerned enough to do something. Where are they? The other 99.
5: Now, the city of Oakland, California, is reeling after one of the biggest protests uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement has seen. About 80 demonstrators were arrested and several injured after what started as a peaceful rally was met with a heavy handed police response at the end of the day. For hours before that, thousands of anti corporate protesters forced a shutdown of America's uh, fifth largest seaport. That's as the general strike. America's first in over half a century also paralyzed several businesses in Oakland's downtown
6: images are the things that we remember images are what tell a story and this morning in downtown Oakland these are the images that you're going to be seeing across all of the screens on the mainstream media the destruction the isolated acts of vandalism and violence but we were on the ground in Oakland so we're going to take you through some of the moments uh, as they unfolded again we are still reporting from the streets of Oakland where as you can hear behind me loud explosions possibly tear gas from the police officers there are at least 100, if not 200, 300 police officers in full riot gear. Uh, Several of them, as you can see, advancing behind us right now on the Occupy Oakland movement. Now, we don't know how many officers are back there. We saw a, a massive group of them sort of walk down that street before. That was the street of the standoff where several protesters had barricaded the uh, the street from the police. Uh, several uh, several pieces of furniture and whatnot were lit on fire. But again, uh, not enough of, uh, of an action to provoke this kind of a militant response by the police force here.
7: They were shooting uh,
0: flash bombs and they were shooting them at people.
3: The bad news is that we're still in this unemployment crisis, so no, it doesn't do enough to remove the risk of stall speed, which is growth but not fast enough growth. We need to see much higher employment creation to get over this issue. What do you think it's going to take, Mohammed, to get that at this point? Are we unable to get there because of the overhang from Europe? I think Europe is an issue, but I think, Mike, we also have a fundamental issue. We have structural problems in the labor market in the housing market in the credit market we don't have enough infrastructure so, so there are a series of structural issues in august we did not see markets meltdown during the fiscal follies in washington we haven't seen it during what's going on in greece when do markets tell politicians enough well i'm not sure people would agree with you mike i mean the third qu- quarter was pretty brutal i think the markets are telling politicians just the volatility mike just the volatility does damage to the functioning of the market so if the policymakers haven't heard the signal yet we are in deep trouble. And so since it's an opportunity to, for me to share a little bit of my faith, I will. Amazing
8: grace
3: will always be my song of praise. The New York mayor, Michael Bloomberg, said that open style violence won't be repeated in his city.
7: The Occupy Wall Street movement has cemented its presence here in Zuccotti Park for nearly eight weeks, but now many believe that the city will try to evacuate demonstrators under the pretext of crime. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is now accusing these activists of endangering the entire community, saying they are failing to report crimes that are taking place here. Some media outlets have also reported that it is actually New York City police officers, some at least, that have encouraged criminals and homeless people to come down to Zuccotti Park in an effort to stir up some trouble. The NYPD has denied those accusations. We did speak with uh, a few of the hundreds of activists that are down here. My experience has been that I've been safe here and that I feel safe here. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the mayor is discussing things, crimes that aren't, haven't been reported. What are those crimes? I do think the mayor's probably gearing up to make another attempt to uh, to remove us from the park.
1: Simply because someone walks into the park doesn't mean that they're part of the movement. A lot of these uh, outlets that have been critical of us characterize anyone who's within you know, a mile radius of this place as a protester and therefore reflective of our movement. But as we can see, anyone can come in here, and that's fine. You know, We want to welcome people in, but certainly because someone's disrupted doesn't mean they reflect what we're doing or that we promote what they're doing. Over-
7: though, all the activists that we have spoken with today say they feel uh, as safe today as they have felt since day one uh, of this Occupy Wall Street movement. They say the momentum is growing bigger, it's growing louder, it's growing larger, and they
6: are here to stay. Now It remains to be seen how November 2nd in downtown Oakland will be remembered. Will it be the charred remains of a few isolated instances of violence with the successful shutdown of the nation's port?
4: Their hearts be stirred. Destiny. Look, they're coming. By the millions, they're coming. From New York sidewalks, from Chicago's factories, from the Mississippi Delta, from California's golden shores, from every state in the Union. Shoulder to shoulder, marching together to overcome wrong and set this nation right. The other.
0: Listening to Next Environmentalist today, we're talking with Richard Heinberg about his book *The End of Growth*. I was watching the Republican debate last week and every single one of those candidates with a few exceptions pushed the blame around, pushed the blame that it's, it's it's his fault, it's her fault, it's not my fault and I could do better and it's easy to say it's her his or her fault. At what point does the fallacy of the financial system become too much for anyone to kick the can down the road or push blame onto someone? At what point do politicians start standing up to the corporate model and put human interests first. Is it going to take energy shortages and food shortages and riots in the street before we actually see those changes?
2: Our political system in the U.S. is profoundly corrupt. And a lot of people are starting to wake up to that And because it's impossible to get anything done in Washington. And the corruption has been legitimized the politicians are, are bought and sold every day, and mostly by corporate interests. The Supreme Court played a big part in that. Until we address that fundamental corruption, I think it's almost impossible for the economic crisis to be dealt with. So if the Occupy movement were to adopt as its central demand, an end to money in politics, an end to corruption in politics and in the corporate sphere, I think from a strategic point of view, that's that's probably the most effective thing they do, they could do. Because there are really a lot of other things that need to be done. We need to rethink economics as a discipline. We need to reform our monetary system. We need to have a, a wholesale energy transition. All of these are you know enormous tasks that will take a decade or two or three decades, and they're hard to boil down to really just a few slogans or catchphrases. But none of those things is possible as long as we have these levels of corruption in government. So what we have to do is is get the bottleneck out of the system, which is the corruption. And then there's at least a possibility that we can start to address these, these deeper systemic problems.
0: But everyone knows that these people are bought and sold. That's like it's a given. The Supreme Court has legitimized that corporations are people and they they can make their will known in politics. That's right. It's so much a part of... The American system and, and a, the global system in a lot of ways, too, because not only are corporations inside the United States donating money to these political candidates, but international global corporations are donating money to American political candidates. Right. <laughs> How do you root out the corruption that is so much a part of what it means to be an American citizen, or be, to be a politician in America, I should say. Yeah.
2: Right. Well, the only way to do it without a revolution is a constitutional amendment. And such a thing seems unattainable. However, I think if the situation becomes really dire, if you've got people out in the street with a unified demand for s- such a thing to happen, and the vast majority of the population is educated so that they understand that that is the essence of the roadblock preventing real reform, then I, I think there's a possibility for it to happen happen. happen. I'm actually more hopeful now in that regard than I have been for the past little while, simply because the attention is being drawn to it. The dysfunction in Washington is so profound and endemic that it's it's become a joke. If you look at the polls right now, only a tiny percentage of people responding to pollsters say that they believe that Washington, by that I mean Congress, but also the president, are acting in a way that they approve of. Oh, that's extraordinary. you know. And the reason for that is not that these are evil people or stupid people. It's just the system that they're in. It's becoming common knowledge that the system is broken. Again, I'm I'm actually more hopeful that systemic change in that regard may be possible than I was even six months ago.
1: So much of this issue has to do with the accumulated debt that we spoke about earlier. Why is default such a bad thing? Wouldn't that just clear the books so we can start over? I mean, couldn't the U.S. just print more money and get our way out of financial difficulty? <laughs> but if the U.S. defaults, what does that really look like?
2: I don't think the U.S. would be likely to, to default anytime soon. I think what we have to worry about right now are some of the European countries defaulting, uh, starting with Greece, and then that could spread to um, Italy, Spain, ultimately, eat- perhaps even to France. And then the banks that hold those countries' bonds would be in a dire position and those banks would start to fail. And that could trigger a chain reaction that would bring down the the whole global financial system. That's not a far-fetched scenario. In fact, I would say that that's probably the most likely scenario at this point. So the antidote to that, the other alternative really, is to somehow organize a default or a series of defaults. You know, that's going to be difficult, too, because nobody who holds debt wants to see the value of that debt trimmed significantly because they have made arrangements on the basis of the expectation that that debt will be repaid. However, this is worked out, it's going to be be messy and it's going to be difficult. But the advantage of doing it in, in an organized way is that people will know what to expect and the pain will be spread around more or less fairly. If it's not organized, the result is going to be a kind of financial contagion that brings the whole thing down in a very chaotic in unpredictable way and people will just head toward the exits and and uh, we could see the whole financial system become completely unworkable and we'd really basically have to just start over you know cancel everything and start over one way to organize this actually would be an economist named Richard Douthwaite in Ireland has suggested this for the central banks to create debt-free currency and rather than giving it to the banks which the federal reserve has been doing with its quantitative easing programs Instead, give that to people to repay their debts and give it out in the hundreds and billions and trillions of dollars so we can actually pay down some of this huge debt overhang that's at the heart of this whole financial contagion. That wouldn't be inherently inflationary if the amounts were in proportion to the toxic assets on the on the books of the banks so that all of this new debt-free currency were merely replacing or paying back the, the unrepayable loans. What this would ultimately do, actually is reduce the scale and the power of the banking system and the financial system. This would be also would be a messy and difficult process in itself, but there's the possibility that it could lead to an adaptive process rather than a chaotic and destructive process.
1: And so our listeners are are quite familiar with these themes of collapse and painful revolution in in mindsets and economic systems. And actually, you mentioned uh, Richard Duthwaite. He was on episode 17 of our podcast. He had had some great uh, things to say about liquidity networks. And actually, that podcast is available on the Post Carbon Institute website under media. And just recently, we released a podcast with Charles Eisenstein, who spoke about the future of money and different ways of organizing monetary systems. And there's uh, resources available on our own show and uh, all around uh, the internet if, if listeners are interested in looking into more of what you're talking about. But we've spoken quite a bit about the issues underlying our economic problems today. And so we wanted to take the next 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so and talk about what the world looks like after growth. We rely on corporations for so many of the things that we do and so many of the things that we need. And now that the growth system is breaking down, how will we meet those needs? I mean, a great example is American Airlines providing our ability to fly around the world, and they're on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, what does this mean for the things that we're used to having in our Mm -hmm. lives? Yeah,
2: well, we're going to have less. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to be glib, but but that's that's really the case. Uh, you used the example of the airline industry. We've gotten used to being able to affordably travel from continent to continent very rapidly using this amazing technology. That's probably not in the cards for the future for, for most of us. It's going to be less and less affordable. It's virtually inevitable because the fuel is going to become less affordable and there's really no substitute for jet fuel. Other than some kind of sophisticated biofuel, which would itself be very expensive. So we're going to be less mobile. Fewer of us are going to be able to afford personal automobiles and the gasoline to make them go. Fewer of us are going to be able to afford to live in big, you know, 2,400 square foot homes and heat them in the winter and cool them in the summer. So that means we're we're going to have to scale back our expectations, do more for ourselves and do more for within our communities rather than relying on globalization for cheap consumer products. Even things that we've gotten used to like, you know, smartphones and consumer electronics rely upon an economic model that is fundamentally unsustainable. Our prized little iPhone, you know, the, the icon of the 21st century is made by Chinese factory workers who are toiling in environmental conditions that none of us would consider acceptable working for slave wages. And those phones are made with depleting non-renewable resources, some of which are getting very scarce and about to become much more expensive. When I say it's an unsustainable model, I don't mean that the iPhone is is an immoral object. I mean, we're not going to be able to continue making these things much longer in the way that we're doing it. So we'd better start making other plans. And I think it's important that as these technologies that we've relied on so much during the last few decades, as they become less available, less affordable, we need to be prioritizing the ways of meeting basic human needs that maybe we think of as old fashioned that people used in in the past. In the US, for example, we're talking about doing away with the post office because of, uh, you know, hasn't been sufficiently profitable or it's going into, you know, running up deficits or whatever. Well, that's a, that's a whole discussion as to why that is. But my point is, okay, we're, we're all using email and iPhones right now. You know, what happens if we have to go back to sending letters? And we, we need to rely upon a, a postal system that's using whatever transport technology is available, whether it's railroads or Pony Express or, or whatever. Well, you know, we need that alternative in place. We can't afford to cannibalize the older, more sustainable technologies just because they momentarily can't compete economically with the latest, shiniest, newest technology. We have to think long term as to what we will need to be relying upon as those shiny new technologies become dysfunctional.
5: petroleum geologists predict at some point between 2006-2010 we will pass the planetary peak oil spike and from then on with every year there will be less and less net energy available to humankind no matter what we do. And this is I believe an epoch of such enormity that to make any meaningful comparison at all you've got to go back to the Mayans, to the Romans and the collapse of the last complex civilizations. Because those civilizations they didn't collapse just because people got bored of being Mayans and Romans. The high priest didn't come out onto the temple steps at Chichen Itza, one solstice, giving it... Heya, 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 heya. Oh, oh, this is bollocks, this is... And the Roman Empire didn't end just because they got bored of being Romans in the last days of Rome. you we were only about 30 people showing up at the Colosseum and the gladiators' hearts weren't in it. Like, <laughs> Even the lions are bored.
4: <laughs>
5: but civilizations collapsed because their strategies for energy capture became subject to the law of diminishing returns. Now, there's a brilliant book out in a minute about peak oil called The Party's Over Oil, War, and the Fate of Industrial Societies. Although I sometimes suspect that it's because my own life is so. Empty that I'm powerfully attracted to a book whose title is The Party's Over. <laughs> yeah, Jude Law, swanning around the globe with all your actress girlfriends. Well, I'm afraid to have to tell you The Party's Over. <laughs> and all you young people driving away in the nightclub discotheques, going home having free love, excuse me while I take the needle off the record. <laughs> the Party's Over. Richard Heinberg, who wrote the parties over, his thesis is: Look, the name we gave to the world that first coal and then oil made is industrial society. When we pass the peak oil spike and oil depletes rapidly, it is the collapse of industrial society. And that, faced with this enormous fact, this elephant in the room, humans are in denial, looking as ever for the quick techno fix, but there is no way out much this time, but we are suckers, and we need to believe. Like the victims of every contract ever played, we need to believe, but there is
3: no way. Well, we
5: run out of oil, we go to the hydrogen economy, but there are no hydrogen reservoirs. Beneath the Thames Valley, you make hydrogen fuel cells from fossil fuel cells. You can use hydrogen fuel cells to store wave and wind. It's not useless, but... It's not an energy source, it's an energy carrier.
9: No way
5: out. Well, we run out of all, we go to the nuclear option. Well, apart from everything else is the small matter. That from mining to decommissioning, the nuclear cycle as a whole produces 75% as much carbon emissions as coal-fired gas stations non-starter.
9: No way out.
5: I don't want to bum you out totally. There are some hopeful technologies, credit where it's due. I mean, not enough people are investing in these technologies, but, okay, they're there. If you must have cars in the future, they can be powered by zinc air fuel cells, uh, which produce a non-toxic byproduct, the zinc oxide, which is a kind of viscous, thick, creamy white substance, which can be recycled into fresh zinc fuel pellets using electrolysis and walnut oil. And the catalyst that they're developing at Stanford University is thermobroma cacao or cocoa solids. So the car of the future will drive along powered by zinc air fuel cells and out the back on a little tray will be produced a row of this thick creamy white substance surrounded by a chocolate whirl with a walnut on the top. <laughs> there is no way out. And transport is the least of our concerns. There is the small matter of the oil
1: we You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Richard Heinberg about the end of growth.
0: economy and our education system has led to tremendous specialization and and urbanization. Can we expect this trend to continue in a post-growth world? And what sort of prospects would a college graduate say or his equivalent face in that post-growth world, finishing their formal education?
2: A lot of trends that we've come to think of as as inevitable are going to reverse themselves. And I think urbanization is one of those trends. We're going to see a a counter trend toward re-ruralization in many parts of the world. People going back to... Uh, subsistence agriculture in very large numbers. And people need to be prepared for that. You mentioned college graduates. Well, first of all, the basic model of young people going into debt to gain a technical education or a degree in marketing or something like that, that model is, is completely broken at this point. There's no basis for young people to take on that kind of debt. And yet they do need certain kinds of knowledge that will prepare them for the kind of world that is emerging. That's not necessarily the knowledge that they would be getting from an education that they're likely to receive these days. So colleges, especially I think junior colleges have a special role to play here because they're cheaper. They're geographically, you know, very widespread. There are lots of them. They're accessible and people can get certificates and and two-year degrees as well as as in some cases, you know, four-year degrees. So again, what kind of knowledge do they need? Well, basic knowledge about things like food production, how to make things, how to repair things. Energy literacy is going to be extremely important for everybody as time goes on. They need knowledge that's going to be relevant within their communities to help not only themselves, but their families and their neighbors to adapt to a more localized, slower paced and smaller scale economy. The kinds of of career paths that that may be available are, are not as numerous as we've gotten used to over the past few decades, but they will involve a lot more generalized knowledge that can be applied in many different kinds of situations. So again, uh, uh, gardening and food production are going to be extremely important in in that. And every every community college, I think, should be starting right now to uh, to develop a local sustainable organic food production program. Right now, it may be difficult to get off the ground, but I uh, I would almost guarantee in five or ten years those programs are going to be you know, the backbone of the
1: community. So, what does the end of growth mean to the concept of development and developing nations? We've spoken with uh, Helena Norberg-Hodge and uh, Manfred max neef on our program, and they've spoken quite a bit about the issues with uh, development in in the way that we've thought about it over the last 34 years as a civilization. Will we see greater equity amongst rich and poor as growth ends, or are we going to have even more concentration at the top?
2: I think... That we are going to see more equity and it's not going to come about as a result of the rich nations at the top voluntarily giving up some of their wealth to, you know, fund the poor nations at the bottom in climate adaptation or something like that. It's going to come about as a result of most of the population of the wealthier countries starting to live a lot more like the poor people in the less developed countries. So development as a goal has been fundamentally flawed. On its surface, the goal of development has been to enable people in poorer countries to construct economies that will enable them to live like middle-class people in North America and Europe. Well, that's happened to a certain extent in a few countries like China, of course, Korea, Vietnam. You can name a few instances where there there have been trends in, in that direction. But for many Really poor countries in Africa some in Asia, some in South America, there really has been very little of that kind of development. People actually have fallen further behind. In other words, the gap, the wealth gap between the wealthy countries and and people in these poorest countries has actually increased over the past few decades. So one could argue that the real goal of development has not been to make everybody in the world middle class. It's been to promote the interests of the corporations based in mostly in Europe and North America, through globalization to give them access to cheap resources and cheap labor in the less industrialized countries and to increase the level of debt in those countries to finance development projects like dams and power plants and so on that those countries don't even need in most instances. So if that's what development is really all about, then we don't need any more of it. And in fact, what we need to do is rethink development, as I'm sure you also heard from, from Helena and the other folks you've been talking to. We need almost a counter development in a sense, a, a strategy to relocalize economies and to prioritize traditional and subsistence agricultural practices. Some of them need to be improved and there's a role for science in doing that. But the trend of urbanization, which has been a hallmark of development, I would argue is an unsustainable trend and is going to be reversed and with development itself needs to be thought of as a relic of the 20th century as we move into a a new set of trends back toward relocalization, toward local economic activity to support local populations.
0: Transportation is a huge part of our food supply and our business models in in most parts of the world. Will renewable fuels make an emergence? And will people be able to hop in a car using their renewable fuels and go on a road trip, maybe using (laughs) ethanol or biofuels? I I don't see that happening in, in any major degree.
2: Yeah, we probably will see biofuels continue to play a small role in our adaptation to the economic future, the energy future. But I think in most cases, biofuels have been a big mistake. Uh, Cellulosic ethanol, the basic technology has been around for decades, in fact. And the efforts to develop that technology further and make cellulosic ethanol a viable reality are, as far as I can see, really going nowhere. So without biofuels, what's the other option? Well, it's to electrify transport, uh, electric cars, bikes, trucks, trains and so on. I think that can take us some of the way, providing that we invest a lot in renewable sources of electricity. But with an economy that is as cobbled as ours is, with an economy that is contracting and where we're seeing the tail end of history's greatest credit bubble shredding in the rear view mirror, there's just not going to be an enormous amount of investment capital available for huge projects to bring on any of of the new energy sources we would like to see. So the the inevitable result is we are going to be less mobile. And we should be planning for that right now, planning to make it easier for people to get around. and bicycles or on foot. And right now we're doing just the opposite. We're continuing to build highways. You know, Stimulus funds from the federal government in the U.S. are going to, to a very large extent to building and widening highways that are going to be mostly deserted in the decades ahead. If anything, we should be revitalizing our rail networks. But also, we need to be thinking about how we are going to, in our communities, meet our basic needs from much closer at hand. A decade or two from now, we're not going to be getting in our cars, driving to the airport, flying halfway across the world and flying back. It's going to be a different world, a much less mobile, slower and more localized world. So it's important that we really start thinking that way now.
1: And I think we can use highways as excellent bike paths. It's (laughs) it's a possibility. So uh, thanks so much for your time today. And we wanted to close out by asking you if economic contraction has to involve catastrophe and grief. And do we really have to see the social and cultural benefits of a period of economic growth that's been unprecedented in human history disappear? We spend so much time discussing problems. What do you really see as the best case scenario?
2: Well, the best case scenario is we plan for contraction. I think contraction is inevitable at this point, but it doesn't, as I said earlier, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. As I'm sure you heard from Helena Norberg Hodge, there's another option, which is to aim for gross national happiness rather than GDP. And if we do that, if we begin to strive as nations, as communities, for improvements in quality of life, for richer culture, for uh, more integrity in in our environment – then I think the sky's the limit. We can continue to have progress. We can continue to improve our knowledge of ourselves and our world. And we can continue to improve our quality of life in perpetuity for as far into the future as our species will be around. But I don't think that's going to happen if we continue to strive simply to increase spending and GDP, because that's really taking us in the wrong direction, a direction in which there there really isn't much of a future. The end of growth certainly doesn't have to be the end of the world. It's the end of a certain kind of world. And I think in retrospect, we may look back and, and see that world that's ending as having been very problematic. And its passing away actually leaves the opportunity for a new world. that may be much more satisfying and beneficial, spiritually uplifting and, and happier than anything that we've known in our lives up to this
3: point.
1: And that's the end of our interview with Richard Heinberg on life after growth, the EU debt crisis, what it means to face the opposite side of the urbanization and specialization trend, talking about post offices and our definitions of technology. So what do you think, Seth? Can life after growth really be better than our current world that we live in? Can we really create a better society than the one we have now in a world that isn't growing? No matter what happens, it's going to be different. And it's how you look at it that makes
0: it what it is. So if you come into the situation with a really positive mindset and say, hey, this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to get in touch with the land. I'm going to speak with my friends with my friends more often. I'm not going to spend as much time stuck in front of a computer screen because there's no electricity. All those things are just the way that you look at it. You could also come at it and say, oh man, I'm not going to be able to get my Big Mac anymore. I'm not going to be able to drive my car and and pollute the atmosphere. I'm really sad about that. If you come at it from that perspective, then it's it's really sad. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people who will come at it from that perspective and will choose not to live in a world where they don't have their conveniences of, a, you know, 24-7 grocery stores and internet that comes three megabytes per second, you know? Those people will not be able to transition into a post-industrial world. There will be many of
1: those people. It's really scary. And a lot of people go around on their weekends and get hyped up all week to go to a professional sports event or a college sports event and for a lot of people that's a huge focus of their life and it's really hard to imagine that these mega spectacles are going to continue in the way that they do now like how many people do you know in your community seth that get really hyped up on sports and that seems to drive most of the conversations oh thousands
0: of people are get hyped up on sports you go to any one of these college events where you see people out tailgating I live in the triangle where there's three major basketball teams that converge in one area. You know, you have NC State, you have Duke University, you have UNC, and talk about some diehard fans. These people are crazy into their sports. I mean, sports are great, they're fun to watch, and they're exciting, but they're a narrative that really has no effect on the lives of everyday people.
1: Yeah, no actual impact in the way that, you know, they develop themselves or deal with adapting to this end-of-growth economic reaction reality that we live in, right? Absolutely, and I think that for a lot
0: of people, they get really wrapped up in false narratives that are provided by a society and by a culture that really has no care for them as people. It really makes you think, I mean, are we here just to consume things? Are we here just to go out and watch football games and buy Big Macs? I don't think so, but for a lot of people, that's that makes up their everyday life.
1: I think that sports will still exist in a post-growth world. It'll just look different instead of having a team in New York play a team in San Francisco and fly across the country to do it, you'll have a bunch of teams in New York fielded by regular people who just play against each other in their spare time. So I think that sports will become much less of a spectator thing and more of a participatory thing. But also that goes to say for a lot more in our society other than sports, you know, agriculture is going to be much less of a spectator sport where you just walk into a grocery store and there's shiny, beautiful fruits and vegetables from all around the world for you to see. And you're gonna have to start growing more of those on your own. And that's really at the core of Richard Heinberg's message. We're gonna have to start doing a lot of the things that are done for us through these industrial supply chains for ourselves
0: that's true justin and i don't know if people will really have a lot of free time as much as they do right now they won't have that six hours on average a day to come home and just sit in front of the television and veg out because they'll be having to go out into their garden and uh harvest vegetables
1: but what do we do with that free time now we won't have any more free time because we'll be using all that time to survive i think that's why thinking about a post-growth world is scary for a lot of people because you do have to come closer to the natural world in the sense of everything that it provides. Not only the beauty of nature, but also the reality of mortality. The fact that we have to face death and the natural cycles in the way that they are. And it's true that a lot of things in our society isolate us from death and isolate us from those natural cycles. But I think we got here for a reason. And we're here because, as Richard said in the interview, oil is so useful as a, as an energy source. It's so efficient compared to coal. It's so efficient compared to wood that we used it for everything. And humans really live some rough lives in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Ever since we started burning coal to power machines, everything about human labor, Everything about the way that we organize our societies have changed dramatically from the 14th, 15th, and 16th and 17th centuries. And it's been a really dramatic change In the way that our species lives but what Richard Heidberg says is that we're headed back to normal we're going back to normal as we move forward and so that's a really important way to think about it instead of thinking of oh here's this world and it's going away and I'm not going to be able to go to the airport and hop on a flight to go all the way to Asia or Europe or South America from North America whenever I want to instead think about returning to normal There's a lot of really positive things about returning to normal. And that means healthier, stronger communities, closer relationships. And that means that you can have more satisfying work. It's only been, what, like
0: three or four generations that have had the benefit of oil in their lives. The integration of these incredible industrialized models of civilization and moving back to a post-oil world, it's really not that much of a leap in the scale of history. It's very small.
1: The positive thing to think about when discussing these topics is that everything about air conditioning and cars have arisen in such a short period of time. Think of air conditioning. The city of Atlanta is now the capital of the south in a lot of ways. It's the largest urban metropolitan area. But 80 years ago, what did it look like? It was nothing. And only because of the advent, the creation of air conditioning, now it can turn into this huge city. And so over such a short period of time, we've created suburbanization, we've created automobile dependence. And so you've got to think in some ways that we can create something completely different in a short period of time. And that's what's really encouraging.
0: Right now I'm reading The Game of Thrones, which is a fantasy novel style book set in the Middle Ages sort of realm where people don't have electricity and they live in these castles and they live in and they travel by horses and they cut each other up with swords. The amount of bloodshed that happens in this world is incredible. People just will fight for their liege lords, which, you know, you could equate to, to nation states, with crazy loyalty and will go to the death rather than have their nation disgraced. We see these kind of things every day still. These are very common themes in our, in our world and our culture. This almost fanaticism around nation-states and about one's own country, do you think in a post-industrial world, Justin, that we've moved back to that sort of barbarism where we're cutting each other up with swords and fighting for our liege lords? Or do you think that as a society, we've moved past that stage of our evolution and we've moved on to, you know, a higher-minded way of thought?
1: I think that our species is still similar in the way that we operate to the ones that, that you're talking about. As growth is ending around us, we're experiencing an uptick in violence. In this last week, there was an uprising in Oakland and a general strike and a guy got hit by a car and there were breaking of windows. And justifiably, there's a lot of rage in the world right now because everyone has been promised the glories of consumer society. And now they're finding out that, hey, I'm not employed, I'm not getting the money that I thought I could get to buy all these shiny consumer goods, hey, I'm underemployed, I'm working at a Burger King or as a janitor when I went and got a PhD or a master's degree in this topic and I thought I was going to be better off than this. So there's a lot of rage out there. But the real question is, will this rage subside or will this rage be able to develop into a creative alternative to the society we live in now? that can provide a good quality of life, that can introduce something that isn't filled with raids against neighboring villages and sword slashings. And that's a real open-ended question right now. Part of me wants to think that, yeah, I think we will get it figured out and we will live in societies that are peaceful and are, are uh, caring and that can emphasize our positive Benefits. But then, you know, I see things like uh, people stocking up with guns and ammo in the United States. And I see all the copper theft that's going on and the rise in metal thefts in the United States and really around the world as the economy deteriorates. And it makes me worry about where we're headed as a species. Will we really have the kind of peaceful existence that we think we do now? Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have access to that peaceful existence, but it goes back to Steven Pinker, who gave a really famous TED talk about, are we living in the most peaceful time of our species history? And there was one guy named Jairus who wrote a book called War and the Noble Savage. And he went in and looked at some of the data that Steven Pinker used originally for his talk. And it was a paper that looked at uh, tribal societies and said that the percentage of male deaths through war was way higher than our modern society and so Steven Pinker was saying we live in the most peaceful time in our human history. Well, if you go back and do that analysis like uh, Jairus does in War and the Noble Savage, he shows that because these groups were so small and because maybe there was one male death through war that happened every few generations, it amounted to an unproportionately large amount of deaths Also, I saw a film at the Vancouver Film Festival called uh, Secrets of the Tribe and it was about the Yanomami peoples in South America that some of this data was based on and it was about the anthropologists who went there and gathered the data and their data gathering methods were so inaccurate because there were language barriers and even once they learned the language fairly well and could communicate, all of their interpretations were blocked through their cultural viewpoints. And so all the data comes into question. And so if you listen to what these people say about the way they live their lives, yeah, maybe they did have conflicts with other tribes, other groups, but these tribes didn't often result in conflict that led to death. Quite often it was throwing spears and marking territory. And you see this all the time amongst like elk and other species, they they clash and they go up against each other but it's not violent in the sense that they kill each other over territory.
0: Are you saying that elk throw spears?
1: I'm saying that, you know, you see elk uh, hitting their antlers up against each other, and that's inevitable. I think that humans are potentially better than that, but in nature it happens. What I think we can do is recognize that those territory conflicts are going to come into play and try to minimize the violence that occurs and just use it as more of like a demonstration rather than I'm going to kill you.
0: Well, when you think about the way wars were, in ancient civilizations and ancient societies, most of the fighting was hand to hand with blunted weapons such as swords or clubs or spears or, you know, maybe even moving to the arrow eventually. So when you go into a, a war with a sword and you're slashing a person, you have a lot different relationship and you can see what's happening when you're fighting somebody with a sword, rather than when you're shooting somebody over a, a expansive of distance, or, you know, alternatively dropping a bomb on them, or using a drone to fly around and drop a bomb on them. There's a very different feeling that you have when you're playing over a video game versus when you're cutting someone down the middle of their body with a broadsword. The idea of war in that kind of sense is put into perspective in People who are involved in these kind of wars don't really want to get involved again.
1: So, I was at a conference this week about sustainability and building. And there's a a guy there who is helping with urban planning at a place called Liwa in the Arab Emirates. And it's outside of Abu Dhabi. And it's a natural oasis. It's absolutely beautiful. And there's been fruit trees and farming that's occurred there that's helped to support this desert civilization for thousands of years. And so the royal family used to live in Liwa, but now they live in Abu Dhabi and they want water that came from that fossil aquifer that lives under the oasis that allows the oasis to exist. So they built a pipeline that pipes the water 100 kilometers up to Abu Dhabi so they can have this royal water in the palace. But what do the farmers use on the oasis to grow the food? They have to pipe in water from a desalinated plant from the ocean 100 kilometers away. So they're not allowed to use the water that sits right underneath them to grow the plants and fruit that they are gonna to use to feed the royal family. Because of our political structures and because of the way we've organized our societies, we make really irrational and crazy decisions that if you just look out at a, a different culture, you can say, wow, that's ridiculous. But that makes sense for them because in their culture, the royal family owns everything. And in fact, in Saudi Arabia, if you live in an apartment complex, it's an apartment complex brought to you by the royal family. And that seems crazy to us, but they look in on our culture and they see the same thing. They're like, why did you guys do that? That's such a waste of resources. That's so ridiculous. So that gives me some optimism to say that in the future, maybe we will be able to use our resources a bit more effectively because we've made so many stupid decisions now. That gives us plenty of very vivid examples of how not to do things.
0: If you want to find out more about The Extra Environmentalist, you can check us out at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check out our Twitter feed at XEnvironmental, like us on Facebook, leave us a voicemail message, and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you.
1: And and in this last week, we had our first radio broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM here in Vancouver. So if you're a BC-based listener, tune in twice a month on Wednesdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And we're going to post the broadcast schedule on our website whenever I get a chance to. And uh, tune in and check it out.
0: We're also on Stitcher Radio, so if you want to find us on the Stitcher Radio app, which is available on all major mobile devices, as well as the internet, find us on there and listen up.
1: And thanks to Michael for writing us from Germany. Uh, He listened to episode 27 and heard the mail segment at the end where we mentioned his previous email. And I referred to the Extra Alliance as a group that was working on paleo and ancestral health. Well, actually, I got completely confused. What Michael was referring to was a name that he invented for our podcast listeners, the Extra Alliance. So what do you think of that, Seth?
0: Oh, that's great. We have the Extra Alliance. All you listeners out there are proud members of the Extra Alliance and we are so proud that you are a part of it.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for listening. We know that the amount of time that you can allow sound to enter your ears in a given day is limited, and there's so much out there to listen to. There's cool music, there's sounds on the street, there's birds chirping, but for this time in your brain's history, you've chosen to input us into your years. And we really appreciate that. We do. And if you really want to take it up to the next level, you can listen to Justin and I talking while you sleep. Don't do that. It'll warp your dreams. You'll have terrible Yeah, you, you, you shouldn't do that. It's a really bad idea.
0: Thanks a lot for listening to the Extra Environmentalist. And as always, keep your enemies far away from you and your friends really close.
1: Cl- close enough to give them a hug. Just hug your enemies, too.
0: Just hug everybody.
8: a real estate agent, and it said, offshore money is pouring into Vancouver. Now is a good time for you to sell your house and buy up. I'd never heard the expression, buy up. I thought you got a home and stayed in it forever and passed it on to your children. I didn't know, it's just a starter home, and we gotta get a bigger one or something else. What a crazy idea that is. Really kind of pissed me off when I got this guy. <laughs> lot near the kid's pool, and I thought if I were to put this on the market, what would I put down as the things that give that place, my property, its value? The first thing I did was I put down the fact that when we bought the house, uh, I couldn't afford it. It was 135000 <laughs> And uh, I asked my father and mother-in-law to kick in some money and said, I'll move you in when you retire. And I did that, and and granddad have lived upstairs for my children for their entire lives, and I put that down as high value. I, uh, my, father, <laughs> my father was a cabinet maker, and when Tara and I were first married, we built a kitchen cabinet in our apartment. When I bought this house, I ripped out the cabinet and put it in our kitchen. It looks, doesn't fit at all, but every time I use that cabinet, I think of my father, and I put that down. And under the dogwood tree in the back, my children had dragged uh, roadkill off the off the streets—you know, there are snakes and birds—and we've got and we buried our pet dog there. And we have an animal cemetery in the backyard. I, I put that down. And when uh, when uh, my my father-in-law is an avid gardener, and he knew that I loved asparagus and raspberries, and he's planted a little patch of raspberries and, and asparagus just for me, and I put that down. And as I began to make this list, I realized those things that make this more than a piece of real estate or property, that make that place my home, those are priceless to me. And yet, on the market, they are worthless. And that's one of the problems we have with this crazy economy. The things that matter most to us have no value
1: next time on the
3: extra environmentalist what we're dealing with is systemically structurally unstable system because what we're seeing happening is not the degradation slowly as you're kind of assuming in your question, what we're seeing is crashes, sudden collapse, and that's what you would have in a natural ecosystem too. A pine forest may be very more productive than a virus for for, a forest in terms of producing cubic meters of wood. However, one match and everything is gone. This is not terribly resilient. The resilience is what's lacking, and the lack of resilience manifests not in the slow degradation, but in collapse. I may surprise you by telling you that the systemic purpose of a tax system is actually to give value to the currency that has for it. If tomorrow the U.S. government decided to use something else for payment of taxes, the dollar would disappear from circulation in a a month's time. And if if they require pencils, pencils will become the valuable thing. Pencils are pieces of paper or electronic bits of whatever nature you want to find it. In other words, the purpose of the taxes is to create a demand function for that particular currency.
0: Welcome to the nightly news on XBNC. We go live right now to the Kane administration, who is making an exciting new announcement about the new appointment in their cabinet. We go live to our reporter in the field, Joseph Methmeth.
1: Uh, Thank you, Sam. We're here live in the White House press conference room where a very important announcement is about to be made by the Kane administration. They are appointing the members of their cabinet right now and are going to push this through the Senate for confirmation in the next few days. I've been hearing that this appointment is coming out of left field or knowing the Kane administration right field because there's not been an administration appointment anything like this and given that there is a man in a white lab coat standing at the podium right now getting ready to make the announcement already has me thinking this is going to be something very special.
0: So Joseph, just before we get started, uh, we've heard rumors about some sort of appointee that's that's not human. Is, is Have you ha- heard anything in the field about this?
1: I have no idea what's about to happen. All I can do is just describe the scene for you here. It is a room full of the press. It is a man in a white lab coat standing at the presidential podium about to make this announcement. And there's a giant silver machine right behind him. I have no idea what is going to happen today. And it's going to be interesting. So, uh, so Sam, uh, we're going to take it away to the announcement. All
0: right, Joseph, we're going to tune in live right now to the announcement from the Kane administration on the new cabinet appointees.
1: Hello and thank you all for attending today's very special announcement. I am Robert Leftfield. I am a geneticist at the University of Texas a and the Kane administration has been pushing millions of campaign funders money into this research project which is quite special. I have been working on a way for creating an actual machine that will allow you to input a stock price and out of it comes an actual person. Yes. No longer do corporations have to be legal people. They can be real people too. And that's why we are here this evening to announce the nominee for the Secretary of the Treasury, the first human being to be produced by this machine, Goldman Sachs. And so, uh we're going to run the machine here. So if you'll press that button, John, Here, here we go. Ah! Whoa! The smoke is clearing, and, uh, and there is Goldman Sachs right, right in front of us. Goldman Sachs, could you, could you make your official introduction as Secretary of the Treasury? Thank you.
9: Hello, I'm Goldman Sachs. I've been created by the Kane administration to bring monetary policy to the next level. Today I'll be taking
1: your questions about how I plan to make this policy a reality. Thank you, Mr. Mansacks. The press may now put their questions forward to the new nominee for Treasury Secretary. Hello, my name is Sandra Bettermouth, and I'm with the New York Times, and I wanted to say that this nation has been struggling with GDP growth for many years now, and I was wondering what your strategy was to kickstart growth.
9: GDP growth is a very important part of my administration's policy. To facilitate growth, one such strategy is initiating nuclear war on a global scale, with the destruction of many cities around the world. We will be called upon to up GDP production to compensate for the amount of city destruction. As we saw in the Fukushima accident and the tsunamis that have slammed into the eastern part of this world, GDP growth has skyrocketed in those places because of the massive need to import food and raw materials the rest of the world has benefited greatly especially the united states because we can support those destroyed economies and cultures if we can replicate this on a global scale just think of the amount of gdp creation that we could have
1: hello this is sam lefwich here from xpcnc and i'm wondering about unemployment our nation has a very serious unemployment crisis that has not been solved Do you have any strategies to help reduce the number of unemployed in this country? Thanks for
9: asking. Yes, I do. We will send out surveys finding out who is employed and who is not, then brand them with working and non-working tattoos, and then we will release drones into the sky that will find all those people who are gainfully employed making money. The drones will come down out of the sky, decapitate some people, use machine guns on others, and poison the water systems in small businesses everywhere. Soon, nobody will want a job,
1: and unemployment will disappear forever. Hello, this is Max Beckman with the Chicago Tribune. It sounds like you're pursuing some really innovative policies here. Healthcare has been a very important issue in this country, and where are you going to take it next? What does cane care look like?
9: Cane care will bring together Obamacare and genocide all into one package, giving doctors more employment opportunities. By randomly infecting people with cancer, along with AIDS and other sexually communicated diseases, no longer will people be healthy. They will be sick, so sick that they will be forced to go to hospitals and pay millions of dollars to make themselves well again. Our country is destined for greatness.
1: Hi, my name's Alex Eagleman, and I am with the San Francisco Chronicle, and I was wondering about the massive debt that the United States finds itself with. The previous Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Timothy Geithner, battling uh, the budget issues of the United States, along with the national debt that it was accumulating, and even though you're looking at a very cross-cutting approach through the medical system and other uh, military methods to raise GDP, uh, how do you expect to deal with the debt?
9: That's a great question. Thanks for asking about that. We've actually been looking into recreating a feudalistic state in many areas of the United States, and we are in negotiations with both Canada and Mexico over annexing them and setting up feudal states that will support the United States in all of its endeavors. We have negotiations going on in South America where we are both talking to leaders there about importing women for surrogate mothers to our bankers to reduce the national debt, of course.
1: And I'm sorry, that's all the time uh, we have for questions today. Thank you, Mr. Mansax. Please, if you have any further questions, please direct them to the Secretary of the Press. Uh, we will uh, leave you alone today. Thank you. Uh, this is Jason Methmeth reporting live from the press conference that you just witnessed, uh, taking you back to Sam Bryanson in the XBNC studios. What do you What do you have to say about that, Sam?
0: I'm getting word from our sponsors now that this is a great plan. It sounds like our corporate affiliates are telling me to tell you that this is a great plan. I think that this is going to help the economy and make everything great.
1: Sam, uh, Sam, it looks like someone has started uh, firing up the machine, and now all of the stock symbols that you normally see are being converted into people. It looks like there's actually a general electric emerging. He's he's planning to command the war after. This is her.
0: Seems that we've lost our connection to the White House. Everybody, it's time to panic and start cooking beans.